I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Alessandro Bendocci of Il Pagione on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. And how are you? Nice to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for, for having me. So you and your father tend to the winemaking at Il Pagione in the Brunello de Montalcino zone. Absolutely. My father has been working at Il Pagione since 1976. Him being the third generation of our family working there. And I joined the winery in 2006. So tell me a little bit about Il Pagione. Where is it exactly? So Il Pagione is uh, located in uh, Sant'Angelo in Colle, a small village just 10 kilometers south of Montalcino. It's the southern part and the vineyards, they're all in the southern slopes uh, of the hill and they go from 200 meters up to 450 meters above sea level, just in one single block. So pretty high altitude for Tuscany. Absolutely. You know, the, the highest uh, elevation in Montalcino is around 600 meters. So to be in the southern part, definitely 450 meters is a very good altitude, especially considering the weather of the last few years. It really helps a lot to have vineyards at a higher altitude. And what's the history of the estate? How long has it been there? Il Pogione was founded in 1890 by the Franceschi family from Florence. They used to own land and, and animals in the area and they arrived in Montalcino, thanks to their the shepherd, was bringing down the herds in the south of part of Tuscany. And they liked it so much, they, they bought it, and it still remained in their family. And now they are on the fifth generation. So they had a, a shepherd working, looking after their animals, and he kind of told them that there was this cool place. It was basically from Florence, you know, the so-called Transumanza, bringing down the, the herds during the winter to Maremma. And it was going through Montalcino, and he really liked it so much that every time he would go back to Florence, he would tell them how beautiful the place was, that after two or three times, they decided to go there and check it in person. And of course, in the 1800s, was kind of a long trip from Florence to Montalcino, but they liked it so much, they bought it from the owners, and it's still in their hands now. When was it planted to what we would think of as Brunello? Well, the Sangiovese has always been planted there. Of course, it started as a you know very much diversified farm, with olive groves and animals and vines. The biggest change was in the 60s when the grandfathers of the actual owners, Leopoldo Franceschi, really invested a lot of time and money in the clonal research. So he planted many different clones of Sangiovese and 
eventually chose the, the best ones for us, which were R5 and R6, which are currently marketed under the Brunello clones name. But definitely in the 60s was when the biggest planting of Sangiovese for the Brunello was made. And who else was making Brunello at that time? There was only a handful of, of wineries, definitely. Besides the Franceschi's, there was the Biondisanti family, Barbie, what is now Barbie, and uh, a couple of other families. But it was like, you know, it's like six or seven families. And then eventually came up to, I think, 15 wineries when the Brunello Consortium was, uh, was founded in 1967. Who was the first winemaker at Il Pagione? Well, they weren't. Actual winemakers back in the you know, 30s and 40s and 50s was uh, mainly cellar masters who made the wine. And of course, Piero Tarenti was a, a very important figure for history of, of Ippogione being probably the first uh, official winemaker of the winery. And my father you know, had the privilege of working with him since uh, 1976. Of course, learned uh, a lot of the uh, practical things to do in the, in the winery from him. So Talenti was there, and there's also a winery named after him, but he was working at Il Pagione, and you knew him because he died in 2006, is that correct? He died in uh, 99, September the 9th, 99. But uh, yes, he also has a, a small winery nearby Pagione, but he had been for many years employee of, of Il Pagione, so working with them as a, a winemaker. And what was he known for in terms of stylistically? Well, definitely traditional wines, the use of uh, large barrels, very large, 15,000 liters, Slavonian oak barrels, and also the very strong uh, agricultural work, farming work in the vineyards, which we are still continuing nowadays just by doing almost spaniel work in our vineyards. Sometimes when I think of old school Brunello, I think of wine that's been aged a long time in wood. What was Talenti's stance on aging wine in wood? At the time when he was working for Il Pogione, was, you know, it was important to have these long agings in these very large barrels. Because, of course, the wine, and that's still, you know, the, the input that the owners and my family provide nowadays with Il Pogione, is that the wine should taste of wine, not of oak. So we've always, and he was always uh, been against the use of barriques for the Brunello, always for the use of large barrels. For a long time, yes, you know, three years or four years, when four years was the rule, but just using the large barrels so that the oak just is like a small brush in a painting, doesn't cover, doesn't overwhelm the, the flavors of the Sangiovese. And what was he like in person? He was a very nice and calm man, of course, with a, with a strong personality, you know, as, uh, as you should have when you, when you run uh, a large winery, but very thoughtful. Uh, of course, like everyone, you know, he had this uh, moment where he was like, a, where his stronger personality uh, came out, but definitely a very quiet, calm and very thoughtful person. And so your dad took over the winemaking at what point? Well, he's been working with him since the very beginning and been, you know, been the winemaker already in the late 80s, early 90s. And of course, he fully took over the managing of the winery and the winemaking in 99 after he passed away. After Talenti passed away? After Talenti passed away. What would you say your dad has changed or has not changed since he took over the role of a winemaker? Of course, working for a family that owns a winery, not owning a winery, we want to, you know, to agree uh, as much as we can with the choices of the owners. So it's important for us to do what, you know, makes Il Pugione so special. So keeping the work in the vineyard, keeping the use of large barrels, but also learning from, you know, things that can be improved. So for example, we, in uh, 2004, 
we decided to go after, of course, making many, many tests to go to French oak barrels instead of Slavonian oak barrels. And that was uh, is a change that has been made since 97. So changing the style of oak, because we found out, we realized that uh, Slavonian oak was giving really green and harsh tannins to the wine. And so we decided to go with French oak and also changing a little bit the size of the barrels, still working with large barrels, but instead of using 15,000 liters, where the size of the barrels was so big, there was almost no contact between wine and oak, we went to 5,000 liter barrels, where there is actually a more substantial contact with the oak, but yet not to the point that it overpowers the flavors of the wine. Of course, the work in the vineyard is being implemented and continued as it used to be, we have right now 75 people working with us and most of them are in the vineyards. So all the work is basically manual from the pruning to the green harvest to the harvest itself is absolutely manual with uh, all of our people. And the strong work of the soil to provide the structure. You know, since uh, last year where finally the government allowed us to do emergency watering of the vineyards before we were able to. So we really have been working hard to provide structure to the soil, to let the vines roots to go deep into the ground. So that's something that we've always worked on to, you know, even improve more and more the quality of the grape coming from the vineyard. Have there been changes to the winery facility? There's a new winery that has been built in uh, 2004. That is also coming from the input given by the fifth generation owner, Leopoldo Franceschi. And we decided that we, you know, we needed to, to have more space to work better. And so we built this new winery in the middle of the property. And we made some changes also in, the, in order to improve the winemaking. For example, in uh, 2004, we started to utilize the submerged cap technique for the fermentation of all of our red wines. Of course, we had made tests before. We saw amazing results. You know, the, the whole idea behind it started because in Piedmont, we've been using it for decades and they have great results. And of course, Nebbiolo has similarities with Sangiovese somehow. So we thought, why not trying to use it? Of course, we had the risk of increasing tannins to a very high level. But uh, on the other hand, we say, Let, let's try and let's see the results. And the results were so great that we decided to adopt this technique for all of our red wines. So instead of pumping over or punching down, you're holding the cap down inside the liquid as it ferments. Exactly. The stainless steel tanks have a mesh filter installed in the middle of it that keeps the cap always fully submerged into the wine. Can be moved up and down the, the filter so it breaks the cap so we don't have to do pushing downs anymore. We still do pump overs, but mainly for uh, oxygenation reason. Since we use for our fermentation only indigenous yeasts, it's important, of course, to get that little higher amount of, of oxygen into the wine. How should I understand San Angelo and Cole? In terms of the Brunello area, what are the characteristics of that area? So Sant'Angelo in Colle is uh, 10 kilometers south of Montalcino. So it is about six kilometers to the most southern border of the municipality. The biggest characteristic is the proximity of the Mount Amiata, which is the closest mountain, is about 20 kilometers away. And most importantly, to the Tyrrhenian Sea, which is, as the crows fly, is like uh, 30 kilometers away. So it's an area which is warmer than other parts of Montalcino, but on the other hand, is uh, never humid. There's always a strong breeze. So even if there's some, some rain, it definitely dries off. The grape bunch is very, very quickly. And another important factor, especially in the summertime, there is always a big exchange of temperature between the day and the night. Even 10, 15 degrees 
which of course can make a huge difference in the development of the flavors and of the acidity during the ripening season. And how many acres do you farm there? The old property is uh, 1,500 acres, of which 500 are planted with vineyards, and the rest is uh, olive trees, grains, and, and woods. What is the breakdown for grape varieties? Of course, the majority is, uh, is Sangiovese, is over 70%. We have some uh, uh, Merlot, some Cabernet, which we use for our Super Tuscans. We have also some uh, Trebbiano and Malvasia that we use for the Vinsanto. And we also have some uh, Moscato. These are very old vineyards from the 60s that we use for the production of Moscadello di Montalcino, which is Montalcino's oldest appellation. And what's that one like? Moscadello di Montalcino is, you know, it can be made in, in three different ways. It can be still sparkling and late harvest. Uh, we are the only winery left to make it sparkling. It's basically a Charmat method. We have our own autoclave. And at the end, it's a very pleasant wine. It's like a six and a half, seven percent alcohol uh, with a very gentle sparkle. And it's nice, fresh, fruity, you know, white fruit and florals, flavors, and a nice acidity. So it's a dessert wine, which is not overly sweet and very pleasant because of the of it being sparkling. What's the difference between growing Trebbiano versus, say, Sangiovese? Is there a big difference between the whites and the reds and how you handle them in the vineyard? Trebbiano for us is a very small production because we make only six, seven thousand bottles of Vinsanto. That's the only thing we use it for. We used to have more Trebbiano when we use it for the dry whites, but of course we don't do them anymore. Uh, there are much better varieties for white wines in Tuscany than, than Trebbiano. But you know, Sangiovese of course needs uh, a very big care, especially for the problems with you know uh, with the heat in the last few years. So. Sangiovese requires a lot of time of working the soil to provide structure to make the, the vineyards not suffer from the drought. Uh, Trebbiano, of course, is uh, more resistant to the heat. We grow it at a lower altitude where there's also high humidity uh, level. So it's uh, being near the river. So that doesn't create as many issues as Sangiovese could. Being, uh, you know, Brunello, the core business of our, of our winery, of course, we put a lot of care in the in the growing of the Sangiovese. So you feel climate change has been very evident in your area? It has. In the 1980s, as an example, we were harvesting the Sangiovese like 15th or 20th of October. Now we harvest, you know, if it goes well, mid-September. In some other vintages like 03, which was the extreme, we started to harvest at the very beginning of September. Some other colleagues, they started at the end of August. So definitely we've seen a big change. And, you know, until last year, we had to really work really hard in the soil. We have the advantage of having older uh, vineyards. For the Brunello, we use uh, vineyards that are at least 25-year-old. For the Brunello Reserva, we use one vineyard which is 50-year-old. So it really makes a big difference to have these old vineyards. And then, since a few years ago, we started twice a year to work the soil really deeply, like two meters deep. That helps the roots to go deeply in the ground and also create a good structure in the soil. When were the Cabernet and Merlot vines planted? The Cabernet and Merlot vines were planted in the 70s. We haven't used them for many years. We were sending the grapes to other producers. And then uh, we started to make, in the 90s, a wine that was a blend of Sangiovese, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Cabernet Franc, which we don't make anymore. And the Merlot, we still use it in a blend with Sangiovese also to make a super Tuscan that we call Mazzoni. And it's a blend of our own uh, Sangiovese from the vineyards that eventually will be used for the, for the Brunello. 
and our own Merlot. So you don't make the San Leopoldo anymore? We don't. No, we don't make it. Uh, there was a, a fantastic wine, you know, it was very interesting. But of course, it's to let the people understand it, you, you know, you would have needed them to taste it. Uh, and of course, it was a fairly limited production. It wasn't easy to have many, many bottles available for all the customers to, to try it. It was a great project. It lasted about 10 years. And much unfortunately, we don't make it anymore. So what would you say would be the difference between the wine that you blend with Merlot and the wine that you release as either Rosso or Brunello de Montalcino? Just younger, uh, younger uh, wine. So you have like brighter, fresher fruit. Of course, being IGT at that point, you have the possibility to irrigate. So uh, that makes a big difference, especially in the, in the last vintages. You get like uh, a more consistent fruit. Whereas, of course, for Di Brunello, that's why we use the older vines. You have to rely on the, on the water comes from the uh, from the rain but of course the young sangiovese uh, has also higher acidity and also has uh, a little bit stronger tannins and that of course the reason why we blend it with with merlot to make it softer uh, smoother and also more accessible so what would you say the drinking times would be then because if that sounds like something i could drink pretty right away as soon as i got it or not with too much time you know because the merlot softens it up absolutely. absolutely you you have the rosa de montalcino which you can drink pretty approachably. When should I start thinking about opening things like the Brunello and the Brunello Reserva vis-a-vis the other reds? Well, actually, even the Avaroso di Montalcino tends to have a fairly long life. Uh, you know, we've opened recently bottles from the late 70s or early 80s, which were actually still in uh, really good shape. They almost taste like a vintage Brunello. Our Brunellos uh, depends on the vintage, but they can uh, definitely last for, you know, over... 20 years, 25 years. I mean, you can start drinking them after six years. So they start to open up a little bit. But of course, the ideal time is to wait like at least 20, 25 years for, you know, for a vintage like 2008, which is a, a little bit softer. Definitely 20, 25 years can be a good beginning for bigger vintages like a 99, or 04, or 06, and 2010. Of course, the life is much, much longer. Let's talk about some of the recent vintages. What have the vintages been like from the Brunellos that have been released in the last 10 years? And then what are the vintages have been like from the Brunellos that have not been released? Because it takes a while to release Brunello. Absolutely. Yeah, Brunello, we have to wait five years before we release it from the harvest. So definitely it's a long time. But you know the, the, the great thing about Brunello is the big variability of the vintages we have. In the last 10 years, we had great vintages. Like you know, in the 2000s, of course, 2001. 2004, 2006, and seven. Those are, are the ones that have been have been released. But also in the future, we have vintages like 2010, especially which we are all expecting uh, because it's going to be a great uh, a great vintage. Other vintages more difficult have been like for example 2003 because of the of the heat wave that that hit all Europe. 05 has been also quite complicated, and also 08. Uh, but of course, you know, the variability of these of these vintages make them uh, more interesting. You can utilize them in different ways. Like for the restaurants, they don't have to keep them for a long time. Like 2008 is a vintage that drinks fantastically right now. So you don't have to wait too long. Of course, you can still keep it for, you know, 20, 30 years or more. But you don't have to necessarily wait this long time before enjoying it. When I taste a Brunello from 2001 and a Brunello from 2004, the, those wines generally taste really good to me, but they taste pretty different. 
were there differences in the conditions between 01 and 04 and some of the other years that made them a little more, although good, a little distinct? 2004 was uh, a little bit warmer than 2001. 2001, we were still a little bit in the uh, weather conditions before the big change in climate. So we still had a very cold winter, rainy springs, very mild. The summers were still quite balanced. Then after, after three, basically, we noticed a big change. So the, the summers were warmer. So the wines are always more generous, uh, always uh, more, I don't want to say opulent because uh, still have the acidity of the Sangiovese that keeps them uh, in a good shape, but you still have wines that are richer and more generous. So definitely, even though four is a little bit of the exception and especially tasted after 2003, but you have wines that are a little bit richer where you have to work harder either agronomically and in the cellar to keep that acidity high and to keep you know the wine the wine pleasant even though the uh, the winter has been warmer are there vintages from before 2000s that you thought were classic and distinctive vintages that maybe you've opened with your dad right before 2000 there was a uh, uh, 97 and 99 two great vintages of course we will say that probably 97 has been uh, overestimated, whereas 99 has been underestimated. Uh, so definitely 99 is, to me, is the most classic vintage of the 90s. Tastes like old classic Brunello and it's been, you know, it's like the the vintage that you can read like on a, on a manual, you know, the ideal vintage on how to make wine, just perfect weather-wise. In the 80s, of course, uh, 85 is a fantastic vintage and so was 88 and 82 was another great, uh, great vintage. We've opened not too long ago, 75, 82, 85, 88, which was still in a, in a great shape, especially 85 and 88 were still fairly young. However, the most beautiful and uh, emotional vintage I've, um, I've opened with my father is uh, 1955, which happens to be my father's uh, year of birth, uh, but it's considered in Montalcino the best vintage in the history of Brunello, or one of the best ones. And uh, that was two years ago, and it was quite impressive to find acidity and fruit and tannins in uh, almost six-year-old bottle of wine. Let's talk about your dad a little bit. He worked with Talenti, and then he took over the winemaking for Talenti towards the end of Talenti's life. He now works with you. And he's also the head of the Brunello Consortium, which is a, the group of Brunello producers that sort of decides on the different rules for the area. What's your dad like? He's a Tuscan. We say, you know, strong personality. Not diplomatic, very straightforward. Of course, you know, not only he has to, to manage a winery that makes 600,000 bottles of wine, but he also is running the Brello Consortium, which groups over 200 producers in Montalcino. So you need to have strong personality, you need to be fairly charismatic, but also be frank and straightforward in your decisions. So he's, uh, he's quiet when he needs to be quiet, but of course he's very straightforward when, of course, he needs to be straightforward. We are colleagues, but also father and son. So it's a, it's a nice uh, combination. Uh, we are 27 years apart. So we have two different experience, different generation. So we, you know, it's nice to have a nice conversations that get uh, louder at times or not so louder. But of course, we have different point of views. Sometimes he's right, sometimes I'm right. And it is not, these are nice conversations to have because of course they improve each other work and personality. And what are the decisions that he's been known for making inside the Brunello Consortium? 
you know, the Brunel Consortium is a board, you know, there's a board that decides uh, what to do. So definitely one of the most important thing that the consortium board achieved was to allow the emergency irrigation, which was approved just last year. That has been a great step because it uh, was something that we discussed for a long time. And, you know, we thought it was absolutely needed. You know, the time of, uh, of overproducing when you irrigate is, is over. I mean, nobody does it anymore, at least in Montalcino. So that was definitely a great achievement that they obtained. Of course, also keeping the yield of the Brunello uh, lower. That's also important, you know, to make people understand how important Brunello is and that we're not, you know, working on invading the market with, uh, with a lot of wine, you know, keeping the, the yield low as they are. And of course, underlining the importance of the Rosso di Montalcino. And what do you mean by that? Rosso di Montalcino, for many years, has been considered the poor brother of the Brunello which isn't. It's a wine with a, its own personality, can be a great wine. So the producers really are focusing more and more on the, on the production of the Rosso di Montalcino. So even, you know, when we do tastings and, and we present the wines, it is given the same importance to the Brunello and to the Rosso di Montalcino so that the general public, the trade people understand how important this wine is for the region. You mentioned before that there were some strong personalities in Tuscany. It seems sometimes when I read headlines that not everyone seems to get along. Are there contentious relations in, amongst the different proprietors of Tuscan, Brunello, Montalcino estates? You know, we're not, we're just not very diplomatic. So we, we like to talk frankly. Uh, that can lead to, you know, bright conversations, if you will. But eventually, you know, we are a big family of, uh, of 200 producers in Montalcino. So, you know, it can seem like that we don't get along. We can, of course, different points of views. You know, there's uh, more traditional producers, more modern producers, smaller properties and larger properties. So we have obviously different points of views, but at the end, it's important to have a conversation. So to to see where, you know, who has who's right, who's wrong, or to find a point in the middle that makes everyone happy and maybe is actually the actual solution to, to some issues that there could be. One of the debates that happened before your dad took over the Brunello Consortium was the idea of perhaps blending in grape varieties that weren't Sangiovese. Did your dad have a strong take on that situation? There was a vote at one point under the previous head of the consortium, Enzo Ravella. The initial idea was to, and it wasn't for the Brunello di Montalcino, it wasn't for blending grapes into the Brunello, but it was for allowing the chance, like as it happens in Chianti or in other parts, uh, in other appellations, to blend other grapes into the Rosso di Montalcino. And perhaps to create a Rosso di Montalcino Reserva or something like that. And that was, add some meaning to it. You know, it definitely would have helped to make the Rosso di Montalcino more accessible to some markets that find still the Sangiovese too harsh because of the tannins. So like 15% of other grapes, like Merlot or others, just on the Rosso, not on the Brunello, would have helped to make it softer, more approachable. And then maybe do, on the other hand, a Rosso di Montalcino, of course, with 100% Sangiovese and with a minimum aging in oak to make it even uh, more special. But of course, you know, in, uh, as in uh, every parliament or democracy, you know, the decision of the vote is what, what it counts. And of course, was, uh, was decided not to approach that chance of, uh, of blending other grapes into the Rosso. So of course, that has been uh, uh, voted off. But of course, us as a winery, we thought could have been, uh, could have been interesting because it's something that some markets are, are asking. You know, they find the, the Sangiovese really, really harsh, difficult to understand. 
So in that case, the and of course, there's no way to make it softer. Sangiovese needs time in the bottle. So, and you can't release the Rosso di Montalcino after four years. So definitely the, the addition of other grapes would make it more accessible. But on the other hand, our idea was to, is, I mean, was and still is to keep the, the Brunello the way it is with 100% Sangiovese. There's never been, there has never been an intention from us to add other grapes to the Brunello di Montalcino. And this was something that, you know, people were saying like, oh, you're, you know, trying to change the appellation of the Rosso. And maybe one day you will add other grapes into the Brunello, but that has never been the uh, intention of the Montalcino producers. In response to climate change, there's been the use of irrigation. Has there been other responses, so, such as perhaps picking earlier or moving vineyard sites higher in elevation? You know, picking earlier, uh, that could have been a solution. But on the other hand, considering the, the tenants of the Sangiovese, you risk to have wines that are they have too strong acidity and the tannins that are still too green. So that cannot be uh, the, the solution. And the same applies to the, to the high elevation. You know, you need to find, of course, the right moment where, you know, sugar and acidity and tannins are at the most balanced level for the, for the harvest. You know, definitely high elevation helps a lot because, of course, the, it's cooler, but it doesn't do everything. In the last few years, we planted vineyards at a high altitude up to 450 meters above sea level. And that has helped us a lot, but yet hasn't completely make the, the impossible possible. It, but it still helps, still helps a lot. And what about the management of the canopy for the vines? Has that become more important over time? Yes, it has, you know, especially with the most recent vintages being particularly warm and sunny, talking even about 2013, where there's been a, a couple of weeks, the beginning of August with a lot of sunshine really warm, I mean, not hot, but fairly warm weather, but mainly with a lot of sunshine. It's important to calculate well the time when cutting the leaves uh, and uncovering the, the grape bunches. So in the last few years, we've always left the grape bunches covered almost around the 20th of August or even later. And that has had a dramatic effect uh, on the quality of the vintage. Of course, until a few years ago, when it was the 15th or 18th of August, it was time to uncover the grape bunches. And it's getting later and later in the last few years. If we did that, of course, you get wines, you know, that are jammier, softer, or most cooked by leaving them covered. And that's something that is getting more and more into most of the producers in Montalcino, leaving them covered until when it's needed. That has made a big effect on keeping the acidities balanced and also the, the level of alcohol balanced into the wine. And of course, having wines that are more balanced and not too ripe. In a way, sort of shading the grapes from the sun. Absolutely, absolutely. Otherwise, uh, of course, the risk is getting them uh, sunburned and having wines that taste really of uh, baked fruit. What about the clonal issue? Are people looking at different clones to deal with climate change? Definitely, you know, the clonal research is something that is always uh, always progressing. Many wineries are trying to find the best clones for them. We have decided to keep using our own clones that come from the oldest vineyard that we have, uh, Vigna Paganelli. And actually, we have created our own uh, sort of greenhouse in the property where we develop the vines to be planted whenever we plant a new vineyard or to overgraft in the old, older vineyards when a single vine dies. So definitely, we, well, we've, I don't know if it's because they've been there for a long time and they got used to the, to the warmer weather or those clones are quite resistant even to, to higher temperatures. But we are, we're finding really great results even when the years are 
uh, are much warmer. Of course, the other big uh, role is played by the age of the vines. If you think in 2003, when we had that heat wave, some younger vineyards, of course, were, were suffering. We went to see this uh, old vineyard that we have, Vigna Paganelli, which is this year a 50-year-old. And we went there and you see the leaves that are open, not like trumpet-shaped. There is new green vegetation. So that's a clear sign that the vineyard is not suffering from the drought. And what about Paganelli? You use that as the basis of your Brunello Reserva. Is wine from that also used for your standard Brunello or just for the Brunello Reserva? It is used for the Brunello Reserva when we when we make it. When we don't make the, the Reserva, we use it for the classic barony of the Brunello. Of course, all the vineyards that we uh, harvest are vinified and aged separately so that we know exactly uh, what is what inside each barrel. When we make the blend, if we don't make the uh, the reserva, then those, that wine will go into the, the regular bottling. And how many times do you make the reserva in, in a decade? It depends, of course, on the on the quality of the of the vintages. Uh, lately, we are doing the reserva only in the so-called five-star vintages. So going backwards, the last one that we released was 07, 06, 04, 2003, and 2001. In the in the future. There will be, of course, 2010. Of course, we decided to skip uh, 08 and 09 because we thought they were very good vintages, but probably not up to the standards for the, for the Reserva, which actually, you know, the fact of using the grapes from the Paganelli vineyard made them even more special because you get the beautiful structure and acidity that come from the uh, wine grown in the Paganelli vineyard. On the other hand, if you consider that we made 03 and 05 Reserva, which are considered generally not very high quality vintages, but we found that the quality of the wine was really great, really pleasant, and actually they were very well received by our customers. So in addition to doing winemaking with your father, you also attend to the marketing side of the estate. Is it interesting to show three different vintages at one time? In a sense, the Rosa de Montalcino vintage, the Brunello vintage, and then the Reserva vintage all being different. Is it interesting to go to the market and talk about three different vintages at any given moment? It is very interesting. I think, first of all, the best part of being a winemaker and also visiting the markets is to get the feedback on the wines that you make. Because, of course, as a winemaker, you like the ones that you make. But your opinion is not necessarily objective because you made them. But we receive, you know, you get really the honest feedback from the people that taste the wine. So that's the most important thing of traveling and of presenting the wines. And to answer your question, having three different vintages is also very interesting because the Rosso di Montalcino, I always see it as the preview on how the Brunello is going to be. So of course, that gives you an idea on how the Brunello is going to be three years earlier. Of course, the Brunello is what we have available and so is the Reserva. So that's always makes a nice comparative tasting between the two, because you see, maybe if, even if you have the, the same vintage of Brunello di Zero, that makes it even better. So you can compare the two wines and see how much a old wine can make a difference. And also when you do, when you have two different vintages, you know, it's also nice to, to see because maybe you've made the Reserva in that vintage. So you, you wonder how will it be? And you have the immediate comparison with the actual vintage of the Reserva. Do you find yourself eating different foods with those different kinds of wines? Uh, of course. The beautiful thing of Sangiovese is that very versatile. So you, you could have even the same, uh, the same dish with all 
three wines. But of course, the with uh, Rosso di Montalcino being probably the most versatile of the three, you can have everything from like uh, pasta dishes, white meat, red meat, cheeses. Then of course, when you go towards the Brunello and the Brunello Riserva, you go more towards like uh, stewed meat, steaks, or very aged cheeses. We've noticed also connected to, to the travelings that Brunello goes very well with uh, also non-Italian kind of food. Indian food is a fantastic match for Brunello di Montalcino. Mm. Uh, so strong, very spicy dishes are very good, you know, of course, with the, with the acidity and with the structure of the Sangiovese. When someone has not tried the Sangiovese before, what would you tell them in terms of understanding what makes Sangiovese a little different than what they might be used to? Well, one of the first things I say is that it's a food wine. So Sangiovese always tastes fantastic with food. It tastes great by itself, but with food is where it gives the best sensations. Of course, it's the, the red fruit is what it matters about the Sangiovese. Whether it's aged or uh, not aged, there's always these fantastic notes of uh, cherries, uh, red and black cherries, and the acidity, of course, which is uh, what makes it great with food, but also what provides the Sangiovese a long life. So these things I always uh, put first, uh, you know, the fruit, the acidity, and the uh, versatility with food, and that opens many doors and makes people understand immediately uh, what we're talking about. In terms of that acidity, I mean, with climate change, are we going to see that same extreme acidity that we're used to with Sangiovese over time? That definitely depends on uh, how well the producer is more of a farmer rather than a winemaker. It is important to have high acidities. You know, the beautiful thing of Brunello is that it's long life. So we need to have a nice, bright acidity uh, with it. Not extreme, just well balanced with the, with the rest of the, of the components. So definitely working the soil, working a lot with the pruning, with the green harvest, with the canopy management closer to the harvest really makes a big difference. So, you know, it's important that the producer goes back to be a farmer more than a winemaker. This way we can keep having the consistent quality with the, compared with the, older, with the older vintages. Does Brunello have a strong domestic market? Do a lot of people still drink Brunello inside Italy or is it more of an export item? It's uh, definitely very important for the domestic market. It's still very well known, the, the Brunello name, all over Italy, so it's a strong market for us. Of course, the export-wise, the U.S. remains the biggest, uh, the biggest market. Of course, uh, for the for the population, but also for the education of the palates uh, over here, compared to I mean, regarding regarding the Sangiovese and the Brunello. Uh, but yes, there is a, still a good demand for Brunello di Montalcino in Italy. Where do you see the progressions happening? Do you see? An increase in frustration or a decrease in frustration? Or what does the future hold for both producing and selling Brunello di Montalcino? Economic-wise, it's not the best The best time. It's not the easiest. Uh, that's pretty much everywhere. Of course, things are getting better uh, slowly. We just need to spend more time talking about Brunello, letting people try Brunello. So there is an improvement. Some areas more than, than others, uh, of course, Everyone is looking towards the, the Far East, and it's definitely a great potential for Brunello di Montalcino. It will take time, as it's taken time everywhere else when we were beginning. But also we see improvement on the appreciation of the Brunello also in uh, Northern Europe. Of course, US and Canada are doing very well. 
South America, especially Brazil, uh, is growing a lot, their appreciation on, on Brunello. And as I was mentioning, in the Far East, some uh, countries like Japan uh, have been appreciating Brunello for decades. And now we are working more towards uh, other markets like China, for example. But even uh, wine countries like South Africa or Australia or New Zealand are improving their appreciation on, on Brunello di Montalcino. Alessandro Bindocci of Il Pagione in Tuscany. Thank you. Thank you. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.